0: Gresham College presents Two Kingdoms in the Third Reich by Professor Alec Ryrie. Good afternoon, everybody, and a particular welcome to those who I can't see but are in the overflow room downstairs. Um, now, this is the third of a series of lectures on extreme Christianity, um, and it doesn't get much more extreme than this one. You'll be familiar with what's known as Godwin's Law, um, also called the reductio ad hitlerum. Um, This is the, the notion that every argument in the modern world eventually progresses to the point where somebody compares somebody else to the Nazis, and then the whole thing collapses, and it's the end of the discussion. There's a reason for that. Since 1945, Western civilization has had something which it didn't have for at least two centuries before that. That is, an all but universally accepted reference point for what evil is. That's important, I think, for any attempt to understand our our modern culture, but it's especially important from the point of view of the history of religion in the West. Because defining evil, the whole business of mapping out what morality is, is supposed to be part of the core business of any religious community. And in the case of Nazism, Europe's main religious communities plainly failed to do this. The slow realization of what Nazism was, was an essentially secular event. And the fact that our public life is now, as I would say, organized around an essentially secular definition of evil seems to me a key fact in understanding the history of religion in modern times. Today, I want to look at the sorry story of how Germany's Christian communities, in particular its Protestant communities, responded to Nazism. This is a story of collaboration, of enthusiastic enabling, and of some strictly limited pushback. Now, Nazism itself was neither religious nor atheistic in the normal senses of those words. Adolf Hitler never formally renounced his cradle Catholicism, but he was vehemently anti-clerical and by the end of his life privately reviled Christianity as a fairy story invented by the Jews and as a Jewish communist conspiracy against the German people. But he also dismissed atheism, the creed of communism, as subhuman, and he mocked the attempt that some Nazis made to revive ancient Nordic paganism's Since the Nazi party was first formed in 1920, it was formally committed to what it called positive Christianity. But that slippery concept was defined, insofar as it was defined, by its opposition to the Jewish materialistic spirit and also to individualism. Although Hitler did think that Nazism should foster what he called some notion of divinity, It found its spiritual meaning not in any god, but in the purity of the Aryan race, a purity whose highest expression was the Nazi state itself. So, it doesn't seem to me that Nazism is in any meaningful sense a Christian ideology, but at its heart was hatred of Jews. And the pseudo-scientific anti-Semitism of Nazism would not have been conceivable, unless it were built on centuries of Christian anti-Judaism. The chief pretext for Christian Jew-hating has long been the, the peculiar accusation that the Jews collectively killed Christ, um, the Romans who actually crucified him, somehow forgiven in this. Beneath that lies a simmering Christian resentment at Jews' infuriating determination to carry on existing How can these people not see that their Messiah has already come and their whole religion is out of date? So Jews were mostly, through the Christian centuries, allowed to continue their stubborn lives as a witness to God's judgment and his mercy. But they were hemmed in, exploited, and induced or compelled to convert to Christianity, as well as being subject to periodic spasms of violence. Now, during the 18th and 19th centuries... European and North American Jews slowly won legal rights and a measure of popular acceptance. But anti-Judaism changed with the times. And it assumed two contradictory, apparently contradictory, faces. For political conservatives, Jews became symbols of godless socialist commercial materialism. If you hankered for the old, simple, spiritually unified Germany, a naive and and not quite innocent longing, then the Jews might represent everything that stood in your way. In 1928, the leading Luther scholar Paul Althaus warned against a disintegrated and demoralizing urban spirituality overtaking Germany, a spirituality whose representative is now primarily the Jewish race. On the other side, theologically liberal Christians found that the new scholarship was letting them discard the old restraints on their anti-Jewish impulses. Almost respectable historians began to suggest that ancient Galilee's people had been mostly Gentile. Maybe the supposed miracle of Jesus' virgin birth was invented to conceal the fact that he'd been sired by a Roman soldier. So once Jesus' parentage had proved him divine, now even better, it proved that he wasn't Jewish. Using the new categories which cutting-edge scientific racism was producing, Jesus could even optimistically be classified as Aryan. Adolf von Harnack, the lion of German liberal theology at the turn of the century, thought that Christianity had moved so far beyond Judaism that the Old Testament might not belong in Christian Bibles at all. By the 1920s, plenty of German Protestants thought it was merely tasteful to downplay the Old Testament to stop giving their children Old Testament names, and to quietly drop embarrassing Hebraisms like the word hallelujah from church use. So the Institute for the Study and Eradication of Jewish Influence in German Church Life, which was inaugurated in 1939, was better known simply as the De-Judaization Institute, was not some sort of ersatz Nazi project. It was launched at the Wartburg Castle, where Martin Luther had translated the New Testament in 1521 uh, to 22, That's a very deliberate attempt to claim the mantle of most, Germany's most potent symbol of religious nationalism. Luther had been being conscripted as a Nazi symbol since the beginning. In 1933, this poster declared that Hitler's struggle and, Germany's, uh, uh, and, and Luther's teaching are the best defense of the German people. Luther's notorious pamphlet on the Jews and their lies was much reprinted by the Nazis. The De-Judaization Institute's director, who was a distinguished, distinguished New Testament scholar named Walter Grundmann, asserted in his inaugural lecture at that institution that its work was nothing less than a second reformation. Luther had thrown off the Pope's stranglehold on Christianity, and now, he declared, scholars had likewise revealed the deformation of New Testament ideas into Old Testament preconceptions, so that now angry recognition of the Jewishness in the Old Testament and parts of the new has arisen. Christianity had to be purged of Jewishness. Any listener might logically conclude that it was also time for Christendom to be purged of Jews. The 1920s, for most of Germany's Christians, especially its Protestants, had been something of an ordeal. Their country had suffered an unexpected military collapse in 1918, a humiliating victor's peace, devastating hyperinflation, and then a cultural takeover by liberalism, licentiousness, and a mocking anti-clerical secularism. The National Protestant Church, which had once been a repository of German identity, was cut adrift by the Weimar Republic. Communism and socialism on the rise both internationally and at home looked like a threat to the whole of Western civilization. Frightened, angry Christians, especially Protestants, voted overwhelmingly for right-wing parties. And increasingly, this included the National Socialist German Workers' Party, known in their characteristic abbreviated style as Nazis. Their distinctive promise was a synthesis between ancient German values and the modern world. It's a message aimed at those who thought that the present was intolerable, but who knew that the past was irrecoverable. And the Nazis embraced some Christian language and symbolism. This 1932 election poster presented 300 Nazis supposedly killed by communists as martyrs. And if the Nazis' violent style was distasteful, at least it showed that they would stick to their guns. They never actually won majority support, of course, but they won enough to be able to seize power in early 1933, in large part because much of Germany's political centre decided that accepting the Nazis was the only alternative to a slide into communism. Now, if anyone had mistaken Hitler's appointment as chancellor for a routine constitutional transition, they were quickly disabused. In the spring of 1933 the Nazi regime announced its arrival with a wave of anti-Semitic violence from its brown-shirted stormtroopers. Hundreds of Jews were murdered. The scale of this is is really now only only now becoming apparent. Jewish businesses were boycotted and the new regime swiftly enacted the so-called Aryan Paragraph. This was a law expelling Jews from all public offices. Foreign observers were shocked and so were many ordinary Germans who neither loved Jews nor liked to see thugs smashing windows and beating people up in the street. Ahead of its regular meeting in Berlin in April 1933, the National Protestant Church Committee was deluged with pleas to speak out. At that meeting, most of the speakers did show some distaste for what was happening, but the vast majority recommended discretion. Plenty of them thought that the new regime was at least partly right They compared the new regulations with the status of German Jews before emancipation in the 19th century. Maybe this was just a return to an old status quo in which Christianity had been closer to the heart of national life. There were those who truly believed that there was a threat of Jewish infiltration and take Otto Debalius, a Protestant bishop who'd preached at Hitler's inauguration, wrote that I've always considered myself an anti-Semite one cannot ignore that Jewry has played a leading role in all the destructive manifestations of modern civilization. Even so, there was at that April meeting real disquiet, a lot of which focused on the status of baptized Christians who were of Jewish ancestry. For most Christians, at least in theory, such people were simply Christians, but Nazi racial theories didn't allow the stain of Judaism to be washed away by mere baptism. All anti-Semitic regulations applied to baptized as well as to unbaptized Jews. It was not too much to expect Germany's Protestant church to make some mild protest about these issues. But in April 1933 they decided not to a decision that most of them stuck to for the next 12 years. The reasons include fear and wishful thinking, but also earnest theological principles. Martin Luther's theory of politics was based on his so-called doctrine of the two kingdoms. This insisted that church and state are strictly separate spheres and must not encroach on one another's territory. By the early 20th century, that original theory had evolved or degenerated to the point at which the church doubted its right to express opinions on any political matter at all. It might, at a pinch, offer some generalized ethical principles but it accepted that how to apply those principles in the messy world of politics was beyond its sphere of competence in effect if a government ever appealed to reasons of state to justify its actions lutheran churches had no reply it was evident that god had permitted the nazi state to take power and the church could therefore hardly defy god's manifest will Karl Barth, who was the Swiss Calvinist theologian and and the Nazis' most formidable Christian theological opponent, wrote in 1939 that that two kingdoms doctrine lies like a cloud over the thinking and action of more or less every course taken by the German church. He was thinking in particular of a recent incident in which a pro-Nazi pressure group within Germany had challenged Germany's Protestant ministers to take an oath to Hitler as Führer and virtually all of them had done so. The oath was terrifyingly plain. It promised total submission with no heed to God or conscience or law. But Christian kings had been demanding oaths from their subjects for centuries. When the nation's rightful Führer asks this of his people now, how dare they refuse? What really made this incident farcical was that the regime refused to accept the oath. Martin Bormann, Hitler's personal secretary, who was a consistent despiser of the churches, dismissed it as a purely voluntary and internal matter. So even when the state did not demand loyalty, Germany's Protestants couldn't stop themselves from giving it. Insofar as anyone avoided this trap, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a young minister who was unusually quick to see Nazism for what it was. But in 1933, even Bonhoeffer accepted that there was a Jewish question which the state needed to solve and that it had considerable freedom to do so as it saw best. He initially found his way around the two kingdoms principle by arguing that the basic function of the secular state is to preserve order. And so the church can speak out when it fails to fulfill that function by, for example, permitting lawless street violence. As he came to appreciate that street violence was the policy of the Nazi regime, Bonhoeffer avowed that the Nazi government was no longer a state at all, but was a criminal conspiracy. That was an effective solution, but rather a blunt one. Bonhoeffer went on to become an active plotter against the Nazi regime, and in April 1945 was hanged for it. In prison, he reflected on why so few Germans had been willing to defy what he called the radical evilness of evil in Nazism. And he blamed it on a fatal humility which led to Germans being readier to trust their rulers' decrees than their own instinct. It was virtuous in its own way, but it meant that when the regime gave evil orders, Germans obeyed with an irresponsible unscrupulousness, he said scarcely bothering to consult their consciences but when they considered defiance those same consciences awoke into an agonizing scrupulosity which invariably frustrated action so submission and obedience was always the path of least resistance that path was smoothed by less high-minded impulses the regime of course terrorized the churches not in most cases by direct attacks but by ominous and implicit threats. In that first debate on anti-Semitic violence in April 33, the president of the German Protestant Church's executive committee admitted that when he'd met Hitler, he hadn't dared raise this matter with him in person. It was already clear that this was not a regime which took kindly to opposition. Christians who were known to have political reservations were regularly subject to frightening harassment. If Gestapo surveillance was not constant, it was assumed to be. There were periodic arrests, and if most of those arrested were soon released, some weren't. Karl Barth called it a form of death by strangulation, slowly squeezing the spirit from churchmen, until after years of jumping at every shadow, they had little stamina left for real defiance. But worse than theology, and worse than fear, the church committee's decision not to make an issue of anti-Semitism in April '33 was caused by hope they had more exciting priorities. To worry about a few Jews whose sufferings were probably exaggerated was to miss the point. The Nazi seizure of power was a moment of national spiritual renewal. The battle against communist secularism had been won. Congregations were surging across the country. The new government, unlike its secular predecessors, was committed to positive Christianity. When Paul Althaus, the Luther scholar who earlier linked Jews to moral decay, Exalted that our Protestant churches have greeted the turning point of 1933 as a gift and miracle of God. He was referring not to the Nazi seizure of power as such, but to a national awakening, which stretched beyond mere politics. The crucial thing in that moment was not to squander the opportunity. Use the hour, one church church newsletter urged in mid-33, so that our church will once again be a people's church and able to participate in the construction of our nation. The terms people and nation, folk in German, strongly implied that non-Aryans were not welcome in such a people's church. But even if that seemed tasteless, carping over details like that risked letting a moment slip through your fingers. If Nazism was a stepping stone to a national Christian revival, then surely its uglier features would soon fade away. And in the meantime, the battle for the nation's soul surely mattered more than a few Jews, whom a renewed Christian Germany would in any case rather do without. Like so many other false storms, this one faded. The congregations ebbed again. It became clear that the Nazis were using the churches more effectively than the other way around. But Germany's Christians clung determinedly to the hope that the regime was ultimately on their side. A hope which, of course, the regime encouraged The notion that Hitler himself didn't know about abuses being carried out by local officials was very widespread. Believers told each other stories of, for example, Hitler carrying a well-thumbed New Testament in his vest pocket. Pictures like this, hinting at quiet, humble piety, were widely circulated. Even in 1941, a rumor spread that Hitler had experienced a Christian conversion. We can't condone this rush to embrace comforting lies, but I think we can perhaps understand it. But there is more to this story than a centrist establishment muddling through ingloriously. Some Protestant support for the Nazis, Protestant support in particular, was full-throated. In 1932, a regional Nazi party leader organized a forum for party members and sympathetic churchmen, a group which he planned to call the Protestant National Socialists. Hitler, who was always protective of the Nazi brand, vetoed that and suggested a simple alternative, the Deutsche Christen, the German Christians. For a short moment, in the spring and summer of 1933, it looked as if the German Christians might end up controlling Germany's Protestant churches as the party's parachurch wing. Hitler appointed a hitherto obscure pastor from the movement, Ludwig Müller, there he is shaking hands with Hitler, as his special advisor on church affairs in April 33, Hitler also pressed the Protestant church, which was then a, a rather loose national federation, to create a new centralized structure headed by a Reich bishop. The new constitution, which was eventually adopted in June 33, was rather less centralized than Hitler had wished. And there was also a deadlock over who the new Reich bishop might be. The regime resolved the deadlock by calling national church elections on less than a week's notice. The German Christians, forewarned, presented slates of candidates everywhere, while the old establishment was left dazed on the starting blocks. The day before the elections, Hitler made what would be his plainest ever intervention in church politics in a radio broadcast, praising the German Christians for their solidarity with the national and cultural movement and he urged voters to support them over the unrealistic forces of religious ossification. German Christian candidates duly won two-thirds of the vote and took control of 24 of Germany's 27 regional churches. The new Reich bishop, promptly appointed, was none other than Hitler's advisor, Ludwig Müller. From then until 1945, because there were, of course, no more church elections, most of the formal structures of germany's established protestant church were firmly in german christian hands now the german christians expected this to be only a beginning their ambition was nothing less than to transplant a nazi heart into christianity they eventually failed essentially because the host body and the transplanted organ rejected each other but the patient was a long time dying at the center of the project as always with nazism was racial ideology humanity's racial divisions they reasoned must be not only a fundamental fact of nature but also god's will aryans were created superior to other races just as men were created superior to women any realistic christianity had to embrace that self-evident truth instead of bolshevik claptrap about human equality now that idea has got theological consequences. If the nation, or the race, are the fundamental units of Christian life, then traditional Protestant preoccupations with individual salvation and eternal life are not only beside the point, but a little bit tasteless. Who would want to share heaven with non Aryans? Or, again, a, a truly German Christianity would have to be a Christianity for all true Germans. The German Christian movement arose in the Protestant church, but they wanted a single Reich church which would encompass Catholics as well, even though neither the regime nor Germany's Catholics were remotely interested in this. More fundamentally, what about traditional Christian ethics? We're not unacquainted with Christian love, the German Christians' first manifesto conceded rather reluctantly in 1932, but they declared that the, the living, active Christianity of the modern age had left behind outmoded ethics as, such as mere pity and charity. True Christian love means protecting the nation from the feckless and the inferior. In 1939, Reichbishop Muller was arguing that Christian love hates everything soft and weak, which has to be cleared out of the way and destroyed for the people's true life to flourish. Now, this was not good news, in particular for Christians of Jewish descent, of whom there were around 50,000 in Germany. Some German Christians toyed with the idea that maybe Aryan and Jewish Christians might coexist in separate churches. Others began to teach ever more plainly that mere baptism couldn't erase racial inferiority. They refused to baptize would-be Jewish converts, of whom there were not many. Um, and started to drive non-Aryan Christians out of their churches. In December 1941, German Christian church leaders issued a declaration excluding all, as they called them, racially Jewish Christians from their churches on the grounds that the racial essence of Jews cannot be changed by baptism. But by then, of course, this was a symbolic statement. Germany's remaining Jews were either in hiding or en route to the death camps. And yet the German Christians' bid to become the Protestant wing of the Nazi party failed. Almost as soon as they triumphed in the 1933 church elections, the regime began to back away from them. Hitler's deputy, Rudolf Hess, laid out a policy of strict religious neutrality, a policy which quickly vindicated itself. In November 1933, the leading German Christian, Reinhold Krause, told a huge rally at the sports palace in Berlin, what a truly German Christianity meant, in his view. It meant, he said, liberation from the Old Testament, one of the most questionable books in the world's history. It meant that the whole scapegoat and inferiority-type theology of the Rabbi Paul should be renounced. Tellingly, the 20,000-strong crowd he was in front of cheered. It was only when his words were more widely reported that they became a scandal. Germany's broad Christian center was content to accept Nazi rule and also casual anti-Semitism, but this was another matter. This looked like an assault on the core of Christianity. Hundreds resigned from the German Christian movement, amongst them in a vain attempt to protect his reputation, Reichbishop Muller, already a man plainly promoted above his competence, who only succeeded in undermining what authority he still had. It was a fiasco, but it wasn't an accident. Christianity's deep roots in Judaism were an acute difficulty for the German Christians. Their dream was to forge a religion which felt recognizably Christian, but was sufficiently anti-Jewish that the Nazis could make it their official creed. What makes this effort pathetic is that most senior Nazis found the project contemptible. What makes it horrific is the aid and comfort that the German Christians gave to Nazi crimes in the process. The party's deliberate separation from any church factions after 1933 could not have been plainer. Members of the SS were barred from holding any church office. The German Christians were repeatedly warned and finally forced to stop using the swastika, although it still continued to be used in church decoration. Um, and the Hitler Youth kept a cross as part of their logo. In 1938, Hess explained that the party's policy was to remain aloof from religious politics so that the churches could quarrel themselves into oblivion and that the people would, he said, recognise that national socialism is a God-ordained order and institution. When war came in 1939, the German Christians longed to provide military chaplains to help the nation celebrate this great unifying sacrament of blood. To their dismay, chaplains' numbers and their rights were systematically restricted. A so-called Uriah law was put in place which had chaplains deliberately sent to the front of combat. This was really only a means of accelerating the view which Hitler had now privately reached, which is that the best thing is to let Christianity die a natural death. For the time being, he would not support any open attack. The ideal solution, he said, would be to leave the religions to devour themselves without persecutions. But in another mood, he would add, if I ever have the slightest suspicion that they're getting dangerous, I will shoot the lot of them. In the Third Reich, the only privilege for which even the most abjectly loyal church could ultimately hope was a quiet death. Still the German Christians tried vainly to demonstrate that their beliefs were compatible with Nazism. The oath of loyalty to Hitler that I I talked about earlier was a German Christian project. The German Christian leaderships of 11 of the regional churches in 1939 produced a declaration describing Christianity as the irreconcilable religious opposite of Judaism. And still the regime wouldn't bite. During the war, some... German Christian churches took to declaring themselves officially anti-Jewish. In 1944, one German Christian publication looked forward to a post-war world completely purged of Judaism. That's an unusually direct reference to the final solution. But no matter how much hatred they tried to offer, the Nazi regime was not interested. The final throw of the dice was the DeJudaization Institute at Eisenach. It was a top-level theological think tank. For its participants, the project of de-Judaizing Christianity was a moral as well as a political priority. After all, a de-Judaized world was dawning. If Christianity was going to survive in this new world, as these earnest Christian scholars believed it must, they had to prove that there was a middle road between corrupted Jewish Christianity and its secularist and neo-pagan mockers. Their proudest achievement was published in the summer of 1940. Formerly titled The Message of God, but generally known as the Folk's Testament. This was nothing less than a de-Judaized Bible. As such, it's quite brief. (laughs) The entire Old Testament is, of course, gone. The three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are merged into a single text in which Jews and Judaism appear chiefly as Jesus' enemies. Some extracts from John's Gospel, Paul's letters, and the Acts of the Apostles are also included, and that's about it. The following year, a hymn book also appeared from the Institute. It's nearly 300 lyrics carefully vetted for any hint of Jewish influence. Both of these books ran to over 200,000 copies, which, given that access to paper was tightly restricted in wartime, shows that the Institute was not without friends. Soldiers at the front, the very embodiments of Nazi virtue, were using them. Maybe the German Christian dream wasn't dead after all. But in fact, nothing could demonstrate its futility better than these books. It turned out that de-Judaized Christianity was pretty thin gruel. Nearly half of the hymn book consisted not of hymns, but of secular German lyrics. The rest had been purged of anything reflective or penitential, indeed of almost any reference to Christian doctrine, militaristic triumphalism, and domestic sentimentality were pretty much all that was left. The Vox Testament was more complex because its editors hadn't been able to eliminate Judaism entirely. Jesus' racial identity is not stated, but he still teaches in the Jewish temple. He even daringly on the cross quotes a Jewish psalm. Nor could St. Paul's Jewishness be hidden. This is why some German Christians wanted to drop him altogether. A few had even argued that the very idea of Scripture was a Jewish perversion. Whereas the Jews were the first to write out their faith, one argued, Jesus never did so. It is often said that you can twist the Bible to mean anything, but if the efforts of the de Institute are anything to go by, even if you abandon almost all of it, there are still some meanings that it will simply refuse to bear the regime still had no wish to sponsor this almost content-free faith. In 1941, Grundmann, the Institute's director, was bluntly told by an official in the propaganda ministry that there is no interest in synthesizing Christian teachings with National Socialism, nor in proving that a reshaped Christianity is not fundamentally Jewish. It is almost pitiable. Empathy in Christianity of all its substance did not Grundmann discovered, make anybody want the husk. But it won't do to feel too sorry for Grundmann. Um, While it lasted, his institute seems to have been a thoroughly agreeable place to work. Most of its alumni managed to shake off any unpleasant associations after the war and go on to successful academic careers. Grundmann himself, after a cursory show of repentance, became both the rector of a prestigious seminary in East Germany and an active informer for the East German secret police. It would be nice to think that the German Christians' Nazi theology simply collapsed under its own contradictions. Maybe it would have done, given a bit more time, but that's often not the way these things work. I'd compare it to another form of Christian apology for tyranny, the pro-slavery Christianity of the southern United States before and during the American Civil War. Both pro-slavery Christianity and pro-Nazi Christianity disappeared, but they did so not because they'd lost argument but because they'd lost wars. It is said that you can't kill an idea, and perhaps it would be nice to think so, but sometimes I'm afraid you can, especially if that idea is one which stakes its legitimacy on an appeal to the god of battles, and if that god then rules decisively and unmistakably against it. So far, this has been a pretty bitter story you will be thinking was there not another side to it was there not some resistance some courage and yes there was up to a point some in germany's protestant church were queasy about the new regime from the beginning when the church elections were called in june 33 the german christians didn't quite sweep the board a fledgling movement calling itself gospel and church i mean here you have the two campaigning alongside each other Uh, This movement argued for strict independence for the church and managed to win control of three of Germany's 27 regional Protestant churches when the rest fell to the German Christians. Not much, but something. Those three, which were soon known as the intact churches, as against the destroyed churches of the rest of the country, those three gave non-Nazi Protestantism an institutional foothold as worries about the German Christians' overreach spread through the churches in late 33 and early 34, those three regional churches and concerned ministers and people across the country formed themselves into a formal entity, which they called the Confessing Church. Over a third of Germany's 18,000 Protestant ministers affiliated to it at its height. That number did fall away somewhat, but there were always more clergy who were members of the Confessing Church than were formal members of the German Christian movement. Nothing else quite like this happened under Nazi rule. The formation of a genuinely independent, nationwide, public organization defined by its rejection of at least aspects of Nazi ideology. The formation of the Confessing Church and its survival throughout the Nazi Reich is a double demonstration of weakness. It shows the weakness of the regime, which for all its pretensions to totalitarianism could not, in fact police hundreds of thousands of believers. It dared not risk puncturing the illusion of one people united behind one Führer by openly attacking a mass movement, especially not when it's still trying to pass its own ideology off as positive Christianity. But the Confessing Church's survival also shows its own weakness, the fact that it never truly stood against the regime. Its achievement was to defend its own independence, And the price was to let the regime have its way on almost, but not quite, everything else. The confessing church was defined not by politics, but by theology. This was the church of old-fashioned Protestant orthodoxy. Scripture, the historic confessions, justification by faith alone. And the chief accusation it levelled against the German Christians was heresy. For many confessors, the German Christians' worst offence wasn't the Aryan paragraph but the doomed attempt to reach out to Catholicism plenty of Protestants remembered after all that the Pope is Antichrist their most heartfelt objection to the German Christians was their intolerable tolerance for Rome they rejected state control very much on the same grounds an early confessing Church Synod rejected the application of the Führer principle to church life on the grounds that it was a papal hegemony unthinkable within the evangelical church what's really intolerable about that, hitler is that he's so much like the pope a minority in the confessing church openly opposed nazi racial ideology but most of them saw this issue as beyond their competence and indeed plenty still harbored an old-fashioned anti-judaism they disliked the theological implications of treating Christians of Jewish descent differently from other Christians, but many of them didn't see that issue as non-negotiable. The Confessing Church's most prominent leader, Martin Niemöller, was a confessed anti-Semite, a former U-boat commander who had voted Nazi as early as 1924. He became an an outspoken defender of the Church's independence early on in 1933. Very unusually for a confessing minister, he was imprisoned, From 1937 onwards, when there was an attempt to release him in 1938, Hitler personally intervened to send him to a concentration camp. But he still tried to volunteer for military service in 1939, unsuccessfully, and he was still willing to compromise on the Jewish issue, suggesting that Christians of Jewish descent should withdraw from leadership roles voluntarily for the sake of the Church's internal peace. There's, I think, some justice in the fact that Niemöller is now best remembered for his apocryphal creed of penitence and solidarity in which he admits that he was silent when Jews and communists and trade unionists were arrested so that when he himself was taken, no one was left to speak for him. The bitter realization behind that perspective was something that he learned in the camps after 1937. For the years before his arrest, as for most of those who remained free, the fragmented, narrow self-defense that he described was all too true. This isn't a story entirely without heroes. A handful of Germany's Christians did try to act. The best known is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, as late as 1942, had a hand in a complex, risky plot which successfully smuggled 14 Jews to Switzerland almost too late. And Bonhoeffer was, of course, hanged in April 45 for his peripheral involvement in the previous year's failed plot to assassinate Hitler. There were others... In the late 30s, the Berlin pastor Heinrich Gruber organized a scheme which arranged safe passage abroad for over 1,700 Jews. But the only Christian group to defy Nazism en masse were the Jehovah's Witnesses, who in 1937 managed to distribute in one day 300,000 copies of a secretly printed leaflet condemning Hitler as the apocalyptic beast. The Confessing Church's greatest theological leader, Karl Barth, who was also one of its most anomalous figures, was merciless towards the compromises of his colleagues. This is how he described most Christians in Germany. An army of neutrals whose symbol consists of two thick blinkers and whose ecclesiastical desire is to be dangerous to no one, thus letting themselves be in no danger. Now, those were bold words, and Bart didn't want for courage. But also relatively easy for him to say, Barton was a Swiss citizen Once his opposition to Hitler had cost him his job at a German university and seen him deported in 1935, there wasn't much more the Nazis could do to him. Bart hadn't endured the 1914-18 war. He hadn't been weaned on myths of German national greatness and humiliation. And that gave him a degree of immunity to Nazi cant. But he was susceptible to his own, more benign, national myths. Um, In 1938-39 he was arguing that other countries had a duty to fight the Nazis, but he also backed Switzerland's neutrality. He claimed rather awkwardly that Switzerland's peculiar calling among the nations was to be a place of tranquility amid the storm. It's not to question his sincerity to point out that these were safe sentiments to express. And even then, the critique he advanced of Nazism was fundamentally a theological one. On a visit to Britain in 1938, he was asked why the confessing church had said so little against the concentration camps. And other than begging his audience's understanding of the confessor's precarious situation, he had no real answer to give. Even for Bart, the priority was to keep the church pure and undefiled, not to stand against the greatest crimes of the age. Of course, the extent of those crimes was still largely hidden, especially for those who preferred to avert their eyes, as most of us do when we're faced with horrors. The confessing church remained silent about the Nazi state's atrocities until very late in the day. In January 1943, 43, Theophil Worm, the bishop of one of those three intact churches, wrote to the interior ministry, protesting against the manner in which the war is being conducted against other races and peoples. And in particular, um, from what he had learned bizarrely from holidaymakers in the the occupied Eastern territories about the systematic murder of Jews and Poles. He said that this wasn't merely a gross violation of God's law, but uh, he added rather shrewdly, unbecoming of a cultured people. And he put it in the context of the recent unexpected military reversals that Germany had seen. Perhaps, he wondered, the nation had forfeited God's favour. But I think it's telling that he preferred discreet lobbying to any kind of public protest. It was later the same year that a confessing church synod at Breslau offered something unique in Nazi Germany, a public condemnation of genocide, insisting that all human life, including, it said, the life of the people of Israel, is sacred, it warned, woe unto us and our nation when the killing of men is justified on the grounds that they are unfit to live or that they belong to another race. Now, mere words, of course. What could even the bravest of protests have done to slow the Nazi death machine? But the churches had proved already that it could be done. On the 1st of September 1939, the day Poland was invaded, Hitler authorized the so-called Action T4 program, mass extermination of invalids. Nazi eugenic theory had long called for the master race to be purified of contaminants. And as this poster implies, supporting useless burdens in wartime was more than the Reich could endure. Typically what happened was that patients were moved from one hospital to another on short notice and the family then received a boilerplate letter informing them that their relative had unexpectedly died of a heart attack or a similar cause and had been immediately cremated for reasons of hygiene. The letter offered condolences and the comforting thought that the patient had been released from a life of torment which was scarcely worth living. By the end of 1940, over 35,000 patients had been murdered in this way. And within the health system, at least, the secret couldn't be kept for long. In June 1940, Paul Brauner and Fritz von von Berdelschwing, two confessing church ministers who were also directors of church sanatoriums, petitioned the justice minister to put a stop to the killing. The minister was an establishment lawyer who was now largely sidelined within the Nazi state, and he offered them helpless sympathy. Brauner then sent a carefully documented memorandum to the interior ministry, an altogether more sinister outfit. Von Bertelswing, fearing repercussions for his own patience, refused to sign that second letter. And again, Brown achieved nothing apart from having himself arrested by the Gestapo, who held him for a month. But the two men had stirred up some genuine disquiet. A judge named Lothar Kreisig, a member of the Confessing Church, now questioned action t4's legal basis in court and was forced into premature reti- retirement to his country estate where he sheltered two jewish women until the end of the war bishop Worm himself wrote an open letter denouncing the policy the confessing church's synod in april in october 1940 discussed the matter but decided against speaking out the crucial voices were those who actually worked in sanatoriums who were, were torn between their desire to challenge the policy and their responsibility to their own patients, whom they feared they might make into targets. The middle way was to try to keep working within the system through private petitioning and networking. Meanwhile, of course, the crematoria kept busy. By the summer of 1941, some 70,000 patients had been killed. What tipped the balance was a public intervention not by a Protestant bishop, but by a Catholic one. He doesn't look like a man who you would likely cross, does he? On the 3rd of August, 1941, Clemens Graf von Galen, the Bishop of Münster, preached a devastating sermon against the Action T4 program. With forensic care, he laid out both the horror of what was happening and its moral implications. And he also took steps to ensure that this remarkable intervention reached beyond The audience who actually heard him preach in the St. Lambert church that day. The sermon was printed in secret in advance of being preached and circulated widely. Copies were sent out, and British bombers dropped copies over Germany. A confessing church synod claimed that the sermon was whispered from mouth to mouth throughout the country. Hitler was furious. I'm quite sure, he said, that a man like the Bishop Van Galen knows full well that after the war, I shall exact retribution to the last farthing. But he also backed down. The disquiet which Van Galen had brought to Simmering Point was more trouble than it was worth. And on the 24th of August, three weeks after the sermon, Hitler signed an order ending the Action T4 program. Of course, the murders didn't actually end, Deliberate neglect and medical experiments continued to claim patients' lives, but the rate of killing did slow dramatically. So, Brauner, von Berdelschwing, Kreisig, Worm, van Galen, and others had demonstrated that when a broad enough swathe of Germany's Christians took a stand, they could have an effect. Not immediately, not easily. But patient and shrewd courage could save lives. The effort wasn't exactly safe to make, but it was not impossibly dangerous either. The churches surely couldn't have prevented the Nazi regime's other crimes, but they could certainly have blunted their edges. Those crimes, after all, depended on the consent and the cooperation of ordinary German civilians. And the Christian churches were the most prominent public arbiters of morality in German society. If they had insisted more regularly in public and in private that murder and hatred are simply wrong regardless of race, then it's all but certain that more of those civilians would have been given pause and that more of the regime's intended victims would have survived. From a safe Distance, the central and terrible fact of Christianity in Nazi Germany is that most Christians were either complicit or indifferent as unimaginable crimes unfolded around them. And it's easy to stand here and say that. To be blunt, I'm neither Jewish nor a Jehovah's Witness, and nor are most of you. We might imagine or hope that had we been there, we would have done something or taken some stand. And we are fooling ourselves. We would have understood what was happening around us in the same way that they did. We would have shared their hopes, their experiences, their resentments, their assumptions, and their prejudices. Like them, we would have lowered our heads and muddled through increasingly terrible times as best we could. There is only one reason that we do not share in that guilt, and it's that we were not there. For more information please go to www.gresham.ac.uk